Thanks for tuning into the Live It podcast. My name is Jason Walton, the host. I'm really excited about the content that we're going to be sharing because it's going to be extremely helpful to entrepreneurs and to other high achievers. As entrepreneurs, we can choose to engage in producing a good or a service that makes the world a better place, enriching the lives of everyone associated with it. Let's not settle for anything less. In addition, I'm gonna regularly challenge each of us to increase our awareness of the needs of people around us, and then to boldly take action. We're gonna make the world a better place, not just through the goods and services we produce, and not just through the jobs we create, but by flooding the world with love and kindness. The information my guests are going to be sharing on the podcast is going to be based on our life experiences. It's not meant to be warranted as absolute truth. We don't stand behind the accuracy of the things that we're sharing. Sorry. Feel free to fact check and do some homework on your own. It'll go a long way and it'll be a very useful exercise. Thanks for being a part of the Livet community. I hope you embrace and enjoy the journey. Thanks for joining us for the Jason Walton Livet podcast. I'm really excited for our guest this week. We have Casey Swenson. Uh, joining us, Casey is one of my partners, and he is a phenomenal, phenomenal person and a great entrepreneur. And he's going to share a lot of wisdom and knowledge with us about entrepreneurship and and just things that he's amassed over the years. So thanks for joining, Casey. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate it. Look forward to it. So, Casey, we've known each other now for 15 think, years? Yeah, yeah. About 15 years? Yep. And when we first met, I remember we we met your wife, who's also named Casey Swenson. That's correct, yeah. She's Casey with a K, you're Casey with a C. That's right. And uh, and Casey, your wife, we hired to work in our office, and she was phenomenal in San Diego. Yeah, she did. She started that um, summer, I guess, of probably 2006, 2007, around there. And um, uh, she loved it, and she was awesome. She did a great job. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And she, and she stayed for a while because... She started working there when you were in law school. I think that's why you moved to San Diego, right? That's correct. Yeah. So we we moved and started law school in 2006. Yeah. And um, we'd been there for about six months and um, we had met and then she started working with you guys that summer. So I guess it would have been the summer of 2007 that she started. Wow. It, it, time flies. Yeah. It's crazy. And then she kept working pretty much all the way through. She did some stuff remote for you all. And then, yeah. Um, and then once we got to many years later and started our own branch, but through that whole time <laughs> she stayed connected. Yeah. Yeah. I think you, you, when you finished law school, if I remember right, you moved to Idaho where you're practicing as a defense attorney. That's correct. So um, once we finished law school, I was trying to decide, I knew I wanted to do criminal law and be in the courtroom a lot. So we were trying to decide how to do that best. And, um, we decided to move back up to Idaho where we're both from. And there was a public defender spot available up in the Boise area. And so I started up there doing that work. Um, and it just would create an opportunity for me to be able to be in court pretty much every day and, and just really hone my, my legal skills and stuff. Did you enjoy it? Oh, I loved it. It was, that was one of the best jobs that I've had because, um, like I said, you get to go to court all the time. You get to do, um, uh, make our arguments written verbal arguments and and then you just meet tons of people so anyone you have to take every client the court appoints to you so everyone that you get appointed to you represent so you just meet a wide variety of people and different life circumstances and so it was it was a lot of fun i loved it and you did that for what i did that for about a year and yeah. a half and um in doing that as you try to help people that had addiction issues or mental health issues or different things going on in their lives, I realized that, you know, the state has all the power and it was just up to them where they were at. And so if they have a lot of community pressure or um, priorities um, that, that they might have for, you know, putting people in jail or jail sentences, then they may not be incentivized to put that person in the best spot to reform or to succeed. You mean the state may not be correct. Yeah. So when you say they, you mean the state, the, the state. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And so as you're, you're dealing with someone who clearly has mental health issues, has been masking it for, you know, 15, 20 years since their youth with, a, with alcohol or other drugs. Um, and they're not necessarily a dangerous criminal. They might still, what I would say, they might steal your lawnmower out of your shed and go pawn it for drugs because they're trying to deal with what's going on in their head. Um, but they're not breaking into your house and taking you hostage or they're not violent people. So these aren't necessarily dangerous people. It's 
somebody that needs help. We don't want lawnmowers getting stolen out of sheds, but they, um, um, and, but depending on where a prosecutor's at or where the pressure is, they might be like, no, they got to go to prison. And, you know, is that really who we need to be sitting there? But on the defense side, unless the state made a huge mistake, there's, you're kind of at the mercy at, at, at that, at that point. So I, I started to decide that if I wanted to, um, help people in a way that I thought the resources were better, such as drug court or mental health court, um, that I needed to, to switch to becoming a prosecutor. So after about a year and a half, I left being a public defender and switched over to being a prosecutor. So you switched to being a prosecutor because you thought you could do more good and because you thought the, the state had all the power? Correct. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was cool. I was lucky too, because out in Jim County, Idaho, at the time the elected prosecutor's name was Dick Linville. And that's how he saw the court system also. He he was a great prosecutor, very kind and uh, very, very empathetic, very um, just helpful in getting people there. And then when the state needed to assert its power to protect the community, he would go all in on that also. And so he would always say, if if someone needs to go to prison, you, you really got to send them to prison. If not, figure out the best way to help them to stop getting out of trouble and see if you can. Well, it sounds, it sounds like you're you kind of had a philosophical alignment. Yeah, it was great. When you were working as a defense attorney, did you ever just kind of disagree with the stance the state took and thinking, gosh, it just doesn't seem like that's in the best interest of the public or of my client? Yeah, exactly. That was that was the big issue is everyone has a lot of different philosophies and or pressures from work. Um, there might be um, you know, kind of career ambitions that, that leak into that also. Um, and at the end of the day, the people who are found guilty committed a crime that has punishment attached to it. So they're not doing anything wrong per se. They're maybe just not using the reform part of the justice system the way I thought it should be used. And so that was typically where my disagreements came from is, yeah, sure, you can try to argue for prison time for that person, but but why? What's accomplished? I mean, recidivism rates for people that go to prison is something like 95%. Whereas if you send them to drug court, it's like 50%. So why not? If they're not violent or dangerous, why not give them a shot? You know, to 50% reformed instead of, you know, a 5% five, 5 chance, you know. It's interesting because it sounds like what you're saying is you felt like the state had so much power and you saw it maybe being abused. So you just joined and became the state. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. So I, that you could wield the power how you thought was just. Correct. Yeah. And that's, you know, and not trying to go because that's not the purpose of what we're here to talk about, David. Not trying to go too far down the the power dynamic. But, you know, there, there was different um, cases and, and things throughout the 80s and 90s, especially that gave the state huge power and eroded the Fourth and Fifth Amendment and Sixth Amendment protections so that you know, when, when, when the state wanted to come after you, they, they, they could come after you <laughs> and there wasn't a lot you could do. So I guess that puts you in a position when you could choose to exercise restraint as the one who wielded that power. Correct. Yeah. And when you didn't think it was appropriate, then you didn't do it. Correct. And like I said, there were some prosecutors that I felt like wielded a very heavy hand. And then there were a lot that were very just and very, you know, did, did it in a way that um, I thought was best for the the victims, uh, the state, the uh, uh, the defendants. And so I, I thought, well, if I could do it like them, then it would be worth changing to do it. So, yeah. So you did that for another probably two years, a couple yeah. of years. Mm -hmm. And then we'd been in touch the whole time yes, because, uh -huh. because Casey was your wife, Casey was still working with yeah. us. And maybe you take me through your decision-making of what made you decide to make a career change. So at the time, um, we were we were really lucky because we Casey and I loved what we were doing for work and, and where we were located. Um, but looking out in the long term, realized that maybe staying in criminal law or at least in the way I was doing it for the long term probably wasn't going to work. And so we were trying to decide, do we want to make um, a change within the law open a private practice, get into, you know, civil litigation or some other type of law? Um, or uh, do we want to make a complete career change? I, I had grown up um, in Southern Idaho and my family was a part of these little mom and pop grocery stores down there um, that, that we had worked in. And so 
part of me kind of had that draw back to, you know, family owned business, uh, building that uh, type of thing. And, and so we were really talking about that and trying to decide where we should go. And then we just happened to be on a cruise together and we were talking about this and, and then the, the, the wheels and balls started rolling for us to, to, to start working together at that point. Yeah. I was excited. I mean, um, as you know, there's a lot more people that have wanted to be partners within yeah. our organization, probably 10 to one, <laughs> at least that, that we don't, we don't have a place for. And there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is, is because it's hard to wield the skill set that I think's needed yeah. to do it within, within our branding. And, but also it's really hard to get to know people. It, I like to work with people for a good while yeah <laughs> to know that we're like-minded so we had that already going for us because we even though you weren't with us we knew each other pretty well oh, yeah mm-hmm. I, i'm i'm curious did it give you during that time set though it must have given you a pretty good opportunity to look at me and look at us and yeah. is, say if this is a group you want to be associated with because well, you had obviously other options well yeah and that, that was the lucky part also with casey having worked for you directly in san diego and then continued to work with at the time, Mike and Tim and uh, Phil, um, and then Austin and John a little bit later. But at the time, I'm just a bystander at that point. I'm practicing law and I'm just a part of Moxie as a spouse, yeah. going and doing different stuff, watching the cool things that Tim and Phil and Mike are doing. And then obviously that you're doing uh, with them and then seeing kind of um, the type of company you guys were building and um, and uh the people that you worked with and so it's kind of like oh wow that's a really a really neat neat company that that casey's a part of and the people she works with you know especially jason are just phenomenally talented and so it was it was kind of cool to see that and then as we then started talking more and then i started looking more at the the nuts and bolts instead of just the group of people the i guess the culture um and 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 then saw even more like how principle centered everything was and how um, everybody ran things um, just with this kind of really neat vision in mind together. So one of the, one of the things that I liked about you was yes, you went to law school and yes, you were a defense attorney and you were a prosecutor. And I already knew that you were extremely principle centered, but I really liked that you came from a blue collar entrepreneurial background. Yeah. I and mean, because at the end of the day, that's what we are, right? I yeah. mean, like it, we are a blue collar business and proud of it. Yes. Like very proud yeah, of yeah. it. And um, I, I, I firmly believe like what career or what profession is more noble than something in the blue collar service industry. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think it's incredibly noble. I don't think investment banking or, or law or other fields have anything on that. This is my opinion. Yeah. And so, um, but I found that like people who've only had professional backgrounds miss something when it comes to home services or things that have kind of blue collar roots. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I agree totally. And so my question is, I'm curious how, how you felt working in your family store, your Casey Swenson, you worked in Swenson's, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. T- I'd be curious if you could tell me how working for the family grocery store growing up um, help to prepare you for entrepreneurship. Oh, great. I, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, so working in the family business was, was awesome. I, I didn't realize it at the time. Um, but then as I've looked back on the experiences that my dad and his brothers provided for all of us that worked there, it was like, it's like, like you're saying, it's like kind of getting an MBA yeah. and then also learning how to work with all variety of people. And so, you know, from a very young age, um, we would get kind of an assignment at the store. My, my first assignment was to fill up the eggs. Um, and my dad would always do a really good job of, of then involving you in that process. And he'd say, you know, Casey, how many, and I'm like, you know, four or five. And he's saying, how many cases of eggs do you think we should order? And I'd say, oh, you know, 500 or some crazy number, low or high. And he'd say, well, we sold 10 last week. You know, what, what's going to change next week that you think we're going to sell 50 fold of what we sold this week, you know? <laughs> And I'd say, well, probably nothing. So we, we probably better order 10 again. He said, well, that's a good, I think that's a good idea, you know? And then he'd teach you about pricing, you know, like we, we paid, you know, 10 cents a carton of eggs. So how much do you think we should charge the customer? And you're like, well, you know, you're little. So you're like, well, I could buy a lot of candy bars if we charge, you know, $30 per carton or whatever. And well, do you think people would buy them? So anyway, he would teach us 
those principles. And then as we get older and get more responsibilities, you know, his kind of mantra always was owning little grocery stores like that is it's like owning a herd of cows of dairy cows. If you don't milk them, then it'll just go dry and it'll, it'll dry up. So, you know, our freight night at that store at the time would come Monday. So that's when we had to stock all the shelves. And sometimes if it was uh, due to circumstance, it was eight or nine at night and, and all the freight wasn't out. It didn't matter that we were seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. You know, we were just all down there as a family stocking the shelves and filling them up. And, you know, uh, my mom's trying to put together like a family home meeting as we're at, you know, they're doing it. And then, uh, um, and then, you know, we're just working and, and it was just kind of understood from that age of it didn't matter if you were tired or hadn't done your homework yet or whatever. If you went to dad and said, why well, I, I didn't do my homework, so I can't help tonight. That would just, wasn't even on your radar. So you just learned from that young age of if there's work to be done, it has to be done. It needs you know? to get done. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you ever stocking the shelves at 10 o'clock at night. Oh yeah. Oh, ever, yeah. ever in there stocking shelves as a young kid at midnight. Oh yeah, absolutely. Ever there at four or five in the morning. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's why I wanted to work. With yeah, you. exactly. I mean, that's the thing. That's the thing of like, maybe if you're just in the legal profession and a brief doesn't get filed, then you're just saying, well, we'll just file an extension. Yeah. Or an attorney with a tax return. That doesn't work when you're an entrepreneur. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's no eggs to sell tomorrow morning. Yeah. And well, and the other nice thing about it too, and like you're talking about working in blue collars, is sometimes in the blue collar world, people can maybe be a little more prone to work paycheck to paycheck, or at least they haven't had the time in the business to, especially if they're younger, to amass a big savings or whatever. So if, if something comes up for them, um, you know, a, a, an issue or something like they got to go take care of it, you know, and it may have huge impact on them and their family. So if someone had to call out sick because they need to go help a parent or a child, um, you know, we just had to step up and do that. And some of those problems can affect, you know, blue collar workplaces more with people calling yeah. out or, or having to miss work or relocate quickly. Um, and so we, that we just had to always be available. Sometimes you get done with football practice and the last thing you wanted to do is go work but if you know the, the meat market needed clean and the person that was supposed to come do it had a life event come up you had to go clean the meat market it needs to know? get done yeah there is no safety net beyond <laughs> right. beyond the entrepreneur yeah and then if i ever give my dad a hard time about it you know idaho's a, a, at the time a, a pretty strong right to farm state so in a family business like that there was no employment protection laws no no wage requirements so he didn't have to pay me and i could do dangerous things and and not have any laws apply to me you know <laughs> yeah well again the thing that attracted me to you is first and foremost that you were a principle-centered man and a good man secondly it was your background in the grocery stores in that in that blue collar family-owned business of just learning a mindset that there's just no other way to learn except by doing. Yeah. And that is that there is no safety net. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you said, when the cows need to be milked, the cows need to be milked. The stuff needs to get done. There is no excuse or reason. Yeah. It has to get done. Yeah. And then the third thing I like is, of course, you're, you're, you're brilliant. And we <laughs> undersold you. You undersold yourself in how talented and skilled you were working both as a defense attorney and as a prosecutor. I'm pretty sure if you were still in Idaho, you'd, you'd probably be the state attorney general. And I'm not joking about that. I think that I think we both know that that's probably true. Well, I, I appreciate that. That's, you know, a, a lot of that has to do with hard work, like you were saying. And then, you know, if you use your talents, uh, then then you can usually get pretty good results. So I'll move forward now and talk a little bit about uh, your experience as an entrepreneur. What were the hardest parts for you in getting started originally in your first, in the first business? Um, so, you know, I think that you put your business plan together um, and you, you, you try to set everything up, what you think is going to happen, and then maybe a best case scenario and a worst case scenario. And so you have the, the roadmap, the blueprint and everything there. And then you go out, um, you know, day one, and you're trying to either get your, your in, in pest control, you're trying to get your trucks delivered, um, or maybe you're trying to get the the phone number put on them or the internet people told you they could come this day, but they don't. So you might not have a working phone. And so everything starts to go wrong early, you know? And so then you're scrambling, you kind of get that like fight or flight to where you stop thinking clearly. And you're like, well, I had to check all these boxes to start the business. And now half of them, I can't even check because I'm getting pushback from 
phone companies or truck companies or, or, or paint or, you know, only one person showed up for interviews the first day or, you know, all these things that you you didn't take into account because you just assumed even in your worst case scenario that like you'd still pull it off. And so like building a house is sort of an order of operations, yeah. though. Mm-hmm. So we can't we can't do this until the electrical is done. It's the same thing when you start a business. Yeah. You can't have people answering the phones when there's no phones. Right. And, or service the accounts if no one shows up to. to, to. So then um, the, in the beginning, then you're trying to solve all these problems all at once. And, it, and, and like I said, you're in that fight or flight mode. So your mind is full of dopamine now. And so it's just trying to th- solve problems in a really foolish way. And so it was hard to take a step back and say, okay, like, what are our phone options? Well, I have a cell phone. So like worst case scenario is we call customers from your cell phone. You know, obviously I was planning on spraying accounts in the beginning. So like that's okay also. And then we, you know, then people start showing up for interviews and, and you start getting people hired. So you start to realize, oh, it's okay if things are going wrong or if the, you know, if the framing package gets, shows up, but you don't have the nails yet, that's okay. We, we have other things that we can do to make this successful. And so that original just first 90 day shock of like, nothing's going like it's supposed to. So how do I continue to make this work? So you can't anticipate that, that feeling and that stress and that fear of like, it's over, it's over before it even started. And then you calm yourself down and then you start addressing the real issues you're having of like, okay, my, I got enough employees hired. How's my training program? Well, it's lacking hugely in these areas. And how's my, um, you know, how's my cash flow going compared to what we did and how can we supplement that or fix it? And so you just start to then dive into those bigger issues now that you anticipated, um, but now you're just dealing with them. And so it's different than how you game planned it out and now what's happening. And so you're just trying to adjust and that that's stressful and hard. But once you get past that original shock of nothing's working, then you can do that stuff. It's stressful and, but it's fun when you look back from, I'm going to put it in the context of seven habits of highly effective people where we talk about principles of time management, there's yeah. quadrant one, two, three, and four. And you're, you're, you have things that are important and not important and then urgent and not urgent. Yeah. <laughs> and so quadrant one are the things that are important and urgent. Yeah. And it's, it, and I, what I'm hearing you say is at the beginning, you find yourself in quadrant one quite a lot. Oh Maybe yeah. In a crisis mode. It's crisis management. Here we are managing crisis. And it sounds like as, as time goes on, then you learn to get into quadrant two yeah. a little bit more. Quadrant two being things that are important, but not urgent because I'm hearing you talk about training programs yeah. mm-hmm. and, and so as an entrepreneur, it's important to learn how to stay out of quadrant one. Yeah. Learn well, it. And also when the stress hits, don't flee to quadrant four, which is what you do. You're like, well, I know I can put this office chair together. So everything else is, seems to be burning down. So I'm going to put this office chair together. What doesn't Something matter? Something that's not important and not urgent. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't matter. And you're like, but I can do that really well. So I'm going to do it so I can at least have accomplished something today. But then you start to realize, oh, that's just a coping mechanism or whatever. You still got to stay on the ball so you can get to quadrant two yeah. pretty quick. Yeah, I think that I think that's a common mistake from my experience that a lot of entrepreneurs make is that if one, I think that most people's business plan originally, which we'll get to later, isn't isn't it could be a lot better. Yeah. But two, I think it just goes sheets to the wind. Yeah. As soon as like the as, th- as soon as things get going, because like you say, it's there's just crisis, crisis, crisis. Like who in, in our in your business who is doing all the training of the of the people who are servicing accounts and who is the who are who are training the people who are answering the phones i mean you're starting with from zero right so who are the people who are answering the phones and who trained them who's giving them ongoing feedback how how are those people giving them feedback qualified right. where, where did they where did they come from right. <laughs> and even if you're hiring them for other entities the more that your business plan is robust and and specialized and there's a reason why you're you then, then it, it's presumed that some of the things they learned at the other companies don't fit in right. at what you're doing. And so I, I think that, that that's what I'm hearing you say takes a little bit of time yeah. is because you start implementing the business plan. You you start having other people who get a little bit more seasoned and experienced. And then at least I have found, even within those first few years when you're starting a business, that there's a lot of indoctrination yeah. where you're really focusing on the principles and the values and getting people up to speed to buy into the vision 
that's why should people be using your service right or yeah. why should people be working with you and it takes a little bit of while for a little bit of time to buy into that i mean heart mind and soul and then those are the people in the future who can be doing your trainings. Yes. Yeah. And those are the people who can help you implement and do a lot of those quadrant two type yes. things to implement your brand and culture. Is that, would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the cool things that is a testament to exactly what you just talked about is the first person I hired, um, she still actually works with us. And so um, it's just kind of neat to see that she's been there for the journey all along and shared some of those positions and in completely different position now than um, where, where we had her. And so, but because I was able to get into quadrant two and start building that vision for her and the training for her, um, it's, it's made sense. And, and now, um, you know, a lot of our employees are, are, are there in that long term, and that, that stuff was established that was carried forward. So, so as you, as you started getting bigger, because there's a difference between a one branch location yeah. and now you're operating in multiple, many different locations. What were some of the main challenges you faced uh, with scaling? So I think some of the hard parts with scaling or some of the big challenges you face are um, anticipating what you're doing now that works, but doesn't work when there's two locations or three. Um, what you think you might need at, you know, let's say what you think you might need at 20,000 customers, you actually needed at 15,000 customers or what you thought you needed at 20, you actually don't need it till 40. So you might've wasted a bunch of cash on, on stuff. And so um, trying to anticipate what you'll need and don't need, what will work and what don't work um, is extremely hard. And then remembering to go to look back and, and reconcile like, okay, this worked and solved the problem, but is it actually the best way, the most efficient way, the smartest way? So you don't keep running a program that's working but it's actually a terrible program for what you're trying to do, you know? Sure. And like you said, what works at one size doesn't work at another yeah. size. And-, and then, and then I think the, the, the other big challenge is when we were, you know, a small branch, especially in those first two summers, you're the service manager, the office manager, the sales leader, you're doing all of that stuff. And so then determining when it's, when number one, you can't do it, even if you want to, and then what you should hold on to the longest, what needs you to, to hold on to it the longest and what what's the, the smartest to give up first and then be willing to kind of do that. So you don't so you don't keep trying to micromanage everything when you can't because you just don't have time. And it, it's impossible. And also then you're spreading your talents out so that it doesn't yeah. work anymore anyway. I think you said some really key things there. One of them is that you said you need to recognize what things that you need to give up. Yeah. And then two, you said then you have to have the strength and wisdom to give those things yeah. up. <laughs> People listening to this may think, oh, that's that's ridiculous. But if if you're an entrepreneur who's passionate about what the value is you're delivering, it is hard to, is it not hard to delegate? Oh, yeah. Well, and probably, not always, but I, I, and I'm just throwing this number out there. It's not, but let's say 50% of the time, things will get worse before they become better before yeah. the people you've given their sea like get their sea legs. And so if I give up completely the daily um, overseeing of the service and just go to more of like a regional manager type position for myself, now that new service manager has to find his sea legs. Of course, he's not going to be where I was after two years of doing it. It, it might take right. him six months. And so you have to be okay with what you just built and it's amazing and beautiful actually being worse for a minute until the person you've you've delegated to do it starts doing it their way and in a way that's that's equally good or or the same as what you wanted and so that's hard not to want to jump back in and be like why aren't why isn't this going well <laughs> well yeah they they've got like 3 days of experience doing it without you there supporting them 100% yeah when it when it comes to scaling a business yeah i've always felt that an entrepreneur's job is to continually replace herself or himself. Yeah, yes. So to your point, you started off treating homes. At some point, you have to replace yourself someone else is treating homes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Maybe you start off answering the phones. At yeah. some point, someone else, you have to replace yourself. Yes. Another point, then you become a manager of a, of, a, of a location. At some point, you have to have someone else become a manager yeah. of the location. You have to have someone else become the manager of your, your people servicing accounts. You have to have someone else become the manager of the people who are answering the phones or doing yeah. customer care. 
And um, then you have two or three locations. All of a sudden, now you have a new job as the <laughs> as 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 the entrepreneur, and now you're what in the future is going to become a regional manager. Yeah. And you now have to replace yourself again. Yep. And and it's just a const as you're scaling, you're just constantly developing systems and processes and personnel to replace yourself. Yes. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And that's that's such a um it's always hard to to train yourself to do that because I always have to remind myself that you have to pay the price for everything you do. So like you may have been the best service manager ever when that was the hat you had to wear as the entrepreneur, but you got to go pay the price to become the best regional manager now or yeah. and then the best, you know, overseer of that stuff and um there's there's no shortcuts to that and you have to go learn it so then you can you can pass it on or you have to go find people with the knowledge and then make sure that as you're plugging them into your program that they they understand where you're headed what the core values are what what you're trying to accomplish so that their knowledge can be plugged in in the way that you want it to and that's a whole new skill to learn how to manage someone that has knowledge you don't have but they still got to do it the way you need it to be done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's really hard to delegate those things when they play to your strengths and yeah. the things you know really well. I found it easier to delegate the things I don't know well. So yeah. to, as you said earlier, when you're growing bigger, the needs of the business just change. Yeah. So for example, the phone system I had with the beginning or that you had when it was your mobile phone. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then it becomes, you know, a, a, a one branch location where there's, th there's three lines maybe that ring in yeah. to a small company. Well then, then now it's time to get a new phone system. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not an expert on phone systems, yeah. and so it was. I loved it when we got big enough where we can hire people who are experts on, yeah, on places that I think are weaknesses of mine. Technology, for example, and and people who are experts on finding phone systems. The phone system that, that works really well for one local branch. All of a sudden, that's irrelevant when yeah. you open two or three locations, yeah. right? And the same thing for software. The software that works for a small company. It's just you need a completely different solution as you keep scaling. Yes. And we talk about this all the time. It just seems like that's, that's probably something that's just never going to end, right? Absolutely. And well, and just like talking about making sure you're prepared is you have to have understanding of how a phone system, which, you know, again, it seems like that's the simplest thing in the world. But what what reporting capability do you need today? What do you need tomorrow? And then what do you need three years from now? And so if you can afford the advanced reporting now so you have better metrics like then yeah you you should get it but if you think well i can pay a hundred dollars per seat instead of 20 but your budget doesn't allow it even though you want that reporting you can't afford it like you just you either got to find another way to get that reporting or live without it until you can you can afford it and that, that those are the hard decisions you have to make of also well i'm going to get this phone system I, only, I know it's a 12-month system, but I can't afford the system I actually need for, for 12 more months. But the system I'm on, my cell phone doesn't work. And so you're constantly having to rework all the numbers and all of that stuff just to fit a simple thing like a phone system in because that ends up being a huge cost and also a huge um, generator of data of what's working and what's not working. So you have to you have to really evaluate all of that. I was asked just this past week by somebody what they felt the most important thing I did in my role as an entrepreneur now. And my answer was, it's to understand, push forward and protect the brand, yes. <laughs> which is the culture. Yes, And I say that because I think a lot of entrepreneurs are too reactionary. Mm -hmm. So you're, you, you may think, well, I'm gonna get this truck in our business because it's the best price. Yeah. Or I'm gonna use this software because here's the price they'll give me, as you said, per license. Mm -hmm. Or I'm gonna use, um, I'm going to use this phone system because here's what it's going to cost. Instead of realizing what do I need to do to push forward and protect my brand? Yeah. Like this is the capability that my vision tells me I need from my phone system. Yeah. And it, that, that's going to allow me to listen, to give the best coaching. Yeah. That's going to allow me to get the best feedback to and from customers. There's many things that I need that, to fulfill my brand position. Yes. And so I need to realize... I need to protect and make sure I get a phone system that does that. Yes. Not just one that that, that was the best price. Right. And it's the same thing with vehicles. It's the same thing with software. It's yeah. the same thing with everything, which is meaning somebody has to house and hold that vision. Yeah. Which in our companies, that's you and it's with, with me. And so we're making decisions. And of course, you have 
tremendous autonomy as an entrepreneur. You hold that vision. And so you're making decisions about what type of technologies and things you use. You may not be an expert in the technology, right. but you're an expert in the brand. Right. And you're making sure that the technologies are able to meet the brand and yeah. culture needs. Yeah, exactly. And that just takes it back to, you know, which we in the, in the beginning, you have to understand who you want to be in the market, like what what that is. And and um, and and you have to service that at all times. And you can't say, well, we're going to abandon that for a few months and then we'll come back to it when we can. You have to always. So in our case, we've always strove to be the best pest control company, right? Like we are um, we want to provide the, the the most expert and best pest control full stop. Right. And so yeah. um, and then and then in doing that, making our customers lives, our employees lives and then the community's lives better. Right. That's what it is. Like we provide the best pest control so we can do that. Um, and um, you can't ever lose sight of that when you're trying to make budgets work, forecasts work. Um, you're trying to decide where to invest capital for future growth and stuff. If you ever lose sight of, well, I have to give the best service, um, then um, you'll you'll all of that won't matter because you'll you'll lose anyway. Yeah. So for us, we've chosen to answer the question, why us? Yeah. Why should people use us? Is because you're going to have. Uh, the best customer experience. And we've, we've defined that in multiple ways. Yeah. One of them is that you're going to provide the best service by people who are, who are most empowered to provide it. Uh, they're compensated to provide yeah. it. They're motivated. They self-actualize. Mm -hmm. But then, as you said, all of our systems and processes, investment, everything um, tie, tie to that. Yes. And, and then it's a different question to say, what does the best service mean? It's right. not, mm -hmm. it's not just getting rid of the insects. Right. There's a lot more to it yep. the way we have defined. Yeah. Uh, what the best services and so yes our technologies and our investments need to need to be need to be aligned what um what is some advice that uh that you can give um on business plans for entrepreneurs who are creating them so i think that um when you're creating a business plan um you know you always have to start out with what we were just talking about with why are you doing it you know and i know people talk about the the why all the time but but you really have to internalize what that's going to be. And there's usually not a wrong answer as long as you're not doing something illegal or <laughs> intentionally trying to harm people. Right. And so, um, you know, some people might define that in just straight, um, you know, I want to provide the, the prettiest or best thing out in the world. And I don't care about anything else. You know, um, some people may define it in, I want to build a, a company where people, want to flock to it. They want to be a part of it. Um, you know, uh, maybe you want to have, uh, you know, there's just lots of reasons you gotta, you gotta find that out. Like why, why are you doing it? And, um, then once you define that, then you can start building your business plan about that. So whatever place in the market you've chosen, um, like we've chosen pest control, but whatever widget you choose in the marketplace, then you can start to build your your business plan around that so like we're never going to sacrifice the customer experience and so in all things that um we we do in building that um we're looking at that with budgets and everything right so like we're never going to say okay we'll use an inferior product so that we can have a lower chemical cost for the first three years we operate have we ever done that no huh no and so when we build our our chemical profile out we build it in the best way to provide our customer the best service, you know? And so that, that doesn't always mean you use the most and best expensive designer product out there either, because that may not be the best experience for them or what they need. And so provide the best solution for that specific problem correct. at that time. Yeah. And so, but if you're, if you lose sight of why you're doing it or what, what you set out to do or what you, 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 you plan to always hold true to, then you'll sacrifice key things and then you'll find yourself, um, doing something that you didn't set out to do. Um, and, and that does it, or, um, you'll make, um, sacrifices in the plan that come back and bite you later. Um, or you'll just abandon your plan altogether, which then you suddenly don't have budgets or forecasts. And then you, you find yourself with, maybe you find yourself bringing in a lot of cash, but you don't understand where you're spending it. And so you're, you're bankrupt and you don't realize it, or, you know, all think, kinds of things can go wrong if you don't understand your business plan. Yeah, I, I like how you said, though, the, the business plans need to start with a vision or a purpose yeah. or understanding that answer the question of why should people uh, use your product or your service? Yeah. 
Why you? And then that the business plan needs to protect that and answer all those questions yep. from a budgeting standpoint, from a technology standpoint, from a growth standpoint. And um, um, I think that that's really good wisdom. So you're starting with the mission statement, you're starting with your yep. value proposition, and that everything has to stem from there or probably isn't going to be good. Probably isn't going to be something that's going to be very yeah. easy to scale for sure, Correct. right? Well, and then I think understanding once you have that down, now you have to understand the mechanics of what you're doing. You really understand the plan and break it down so you understand. I always liken them to levers. You know, like what happens if I pull this lever? Yeah, right. What, what if I spend less money on labor or more money on labor? Or what if I, you know, buy too many trucks or don't buy enough trucks? And then as you start to understand those scenarios and run through them in your mind, then when, like we were talking about, when you get past that initial shock of, you know, quadrant one and you're getting back to quadrant two, now you can look at your levers and say, hey, I'm facing 10%, 8% inflation, which I didn't anticipate 12 months ago when I started this business. Um, so what lever can I pull within my business plan to compensate for that without getting away from my core value? So there's something in there that you can adjust, you know, you can pull back here and then push forward here. So you can help your employees combat uh, inflation by giving people raises. So you got to push the labor uh, lever forward. Then you can compensate over here by, you know, maybe you're you are providing breakfast every morning for them to say, hey, look, guys, I think it's more important for you to have a higher wage to combat inflation in your personal life so that everyone will continue to provide this amazing experience. But in order to do that, we're going to have to make some adjustments over here. So as you as you understand your plan, then you can make those propositions to your employees, to your customers, whoever and um and and know where you can find solutions it's fun isn't it yeah it is it's awesome yeah, and it's challenging and it's it just never stops being uh i'm really glad of the profession we've chosen yeah i'm really too. really grateful i get to work with 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 you specifically well i appreciate it it's, it's been a fun fun journey sounds like we're done but we're not i'm going to ask <laughs> you about budgeting and cash flow okay. so i'd love to know about the, the your process for how you set and follow up on budgets. And that's budgets both for profitability, uh -huh. sorry, forecasts for profitability or loss, and then also just budgeting for cash flow. Yeah. So um, budgeting is, it's, um, it's it, it really, I see it kind of two ways. It's understanding your historical data really, really well and what all your inputs are into the budget. And so you can get too granular in that, but I think sometimes people don't get granular enough, you know, so you have to understand what all your inputs are that go into the budget. And then you have to start to understand your historical data of if, if a certain line item has traditionally only run 2%, but now it's jumped to 4%. Why is that? Is it because somebody made a mistake and we spent too much money? Or is it because when you scaled from two branches to four, that's just the, the, the new truth. That line item is going to be four percent um and then in 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 looking back and understanding those inputs then you can forecast and say okay over the next 12 months based on what's happened when we went from one to two branches from two to four um when we went from you know um, this many customers this many you can start to say okay i'm seeing these trends it feels like every x amount of customers this line item is going to grow not shrink Whereas these other three line items are going to become more efficient. So next year, based on us opening another location and adding, you know, 30% more customers, I, I, I predict that this is what will happen. And then at the end of that year, you know, you do the one year, the three year, the five year. And then at the end of the year, you look and you say, aha, I've, I've got this dialed in pretty good now to be able to forecast. I, I understand my inputs and stuff really well. And then whatever things came back really wonky then you can ask, what did we change? We opened a branch, we added a regional manager position. Like what was it that changed that was the new input that caused the different result from the forecast? And why didn't I understand that? And then try to get better understanding the inputs you're adding or taking away. And then you're sitting playing with the levers yeah. as you're yep. experimenting with things. It sounds like you just, um, retaught us the lessons your dad taught you as a yeah, boy exactly. with, with stocking the eggs. <laughs> exactly. Uh -huh. And asking about, yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, like you'll say, it's like, well, I just need more revenue. Well, so should I raise prices? Well, that's a new input and that's going to have consequences, right? And so, you you know, maybe. But you, like, you need to be able to measure those consequences. Yeah, you gotta under, if you don't understand what happens when you raise prices on your customers, then 
that's a risk, you know? Yeah. And so the, those are, yeah, you just gotta, um, yeah, you, you really, and so, yeah, again, going back to the grocery stores, that was, that was super lucky. Yeah. So that's a good advice. I think for, for new entrepreneurs who are just getting started, good advice for them is to understand the inputs and to carefully track them. Yes. Right. At a granular level. Cause you got one location you just opened up. So really understand the line items on a financial statement. Because when you were saying this one was 2% over, usually for us, when we say that, we're talking about a line item of financial state. Correct, yeah. Chemical cost. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, field care uh, labor expense. Yes. Office labor expense. Yeah. And, and and of course, creating the, the those chart of accounts is important because the way you create those your expenses in your chart of accounts allows you to more quickly... Um, benchmark different cost costing, yeah, right, so that you can see if it's going up or going down. Yeah, I think entrepreneurs oftentimes don't spend enough time in creating their chart of accounts. Yeah, and they don't spend enough time when they are having ex- when they have expenses or revenues of putting them into the correct charts. Yeah, but th- that's so important when you're going to benchmark items and understand cause and effect, and to be able to make decisions. You can't make decisions with data you don't have. Right. And it's not tracked properly. And, and yeah. just a good example is when we first started that first branch, we had five service uh, people at the you know field experts at the beginning. Um, you know, five uniforms for the people for the year. That's that was nothing. You know what I mean? That could be tucked away in field expert operating expenses along with like paper and a few other things, right? But all of a sudden now, where we have 150 to 200 field experts in the summertime. Well, if each of their uniforms for the year is running, you know, $50 per employee. And then um, with other incentives and rain jackets, maybe it gets up to 150 per employee, depending on the market. Well, I mean, you multiply that times 150 people and you're going to add 50 new field people next year to open that branch. Like that has to be tracked separate. You have to have your uniforms tracked separate now so that you can understand what 50 new employees in that department will do to your budget because if you just have it all tucked away you're like oh man like why why is my operating expense so expensive in my field and you don't know because it's just all tucked in there i noticed that's one of the things that you you've been doing and progressing really well which is developing a budgeting and forecasting tool yes and constantly constantly it's pretty sophisticated now yeah yes and so it's 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 granular in your line items so that you have the data that tells you exactly what you're spending on and you yeah. can compare it to uh the same time period of last year you can compare it to the same time period of last month mm-hmm. and there's just a lot of ways of structuring those you've done a, such a good job of structuring tracking and structuring that data that allows you to make very informed decisions i think that most young entrepreneurs that i that i meet are do a really, really bad job yeah. of that, and I think that I think it becomes virtually impossible to make good decisions. It, it, it's it's almost impossible to scale. Yeah, and uh, and and so for the entrepreneurs out there that are listening, I think that that's a uh, that's what? they could they could learn a lesson from Casey Swenson on that one. Well, I think probably what that comes from too. You know, going back to my training days, is my dad was never like a super detail oriented person, and that went always bothered me that he would kind of like. He was always working off of, of estimates and guesstimating. And I, I understand now looking back that like he just kept it in his head. Like, he, you know, he didn't maybe put it on a, a spreadsheet or write it down as much. And he was really accurate with it. But it bothered me because it was like, hey, you know, like, why can't we plan this better? You know, and he's like, oh, it'll be fine. You know, like it's I know what we need or it, just go do it this way and it'll be fine. And, and I'd always be bothered of like, well, why can't we like put into paper and say like, we're going to buy a new, you know, display next year that's refrigerated. And so this is what that'll take and stuff. And he's like, ah, don't worry about it. It'll be, it'll be fine. You know? And, and so in, in, in me now, you know, that I'm kind of at the helm of my thing is that like, I'm running, like I'll run like a test year of like, let's see if we can come up with two or three different formulas to predict how many vehicles we need next year. Right. We'll test those formulas for a year or two. And then if they, if they work, then, We'll start using them because I want to know, you know, I don't like, I don't like that ambiguity that either my dad didn't mind living in or just never, you know, but it was, that was kind of a, a lesson that I wanted to, to, to not have it be a part of me, if that makes sense. I'm going to ask an honest question about this. Your dad, obviously you owe most of what you've done to, to your parents oh, yeah. for having mm-hmm. great parents. And what your dad did was fine for what he was doing. Yes. 
And there's he doesn't owe an apology to anyone. It's not for us to say whether he should have done it differently. Right. The question I have is, do you think he could have opened 40 grocery stores doing it that way? Oh, no. Uh-uh. It just doesn't work uh-uh, at scale, no. right? Yeah. Yeah. So so there's the uh, paying attention to that detail uh, is important if you want to scale. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And 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 they kind of like their philosophy was you know, him and his brothers and, and from their dad was kind of like create a store that's yours, like kind of almost more create a job for yourself than make the business create more for going forward. And then obviously they had all the different life circumstances that come, but There's nothing wrong but with generally that. speaking, that was the, how they were operating. And so they missed out on some opportunities because they either didn't know how, or they didn't want to like, it's just not maybe not that. how they wanted to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just wouldn't work if, if they were trying to scale, which they weren't. Right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so how, how many years now have you, have you been an entrepreneur owning your own business? Uh, since 2015. So we're in about, we're in our eighth summer, but it's seven years. So okay. a little over seven years. Your, your first year that you started, you did right before that you did $0 in revenue. That's correct. Yes. Uh, <laughs> your first year, what, what did you do? Um, our first, you know, calendar year, not full 12 months we did, um, cause we do calendar year typically. Yeah. So our first calendar year, we probably did you know, um, uh, we did about $600,000 in revenue. Mm-hmm. And then what will you do in 2022? Um, we should do about 42 to 45 million this year. Yeah. <laughs> so it's grown a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Just a few years. So not, not much longer and you'll be, uh, you'll add another zero. That, hopefully. Yeah. That's where we're headed. You need another comma. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I really appreciate you taking time to to talk with me today about uh, your life as an entrepreneur, your life as an attorney, and just you in general. Well, and- I, I really appreciate all the the mentorship that um, that you've given me. Um, it, it's it's awesome to um, sometimes be able to go into the woods. You know, the old saying: you can't see the the trees through the forest, or the forest through the woods. Like, depending on where you're at at the time you got to have those mentors or people you can always call on that can, that can tell you, Hey, go get back in the woods. You're missing something there. You, you're, you're too outside. You're just looking at the forest or sometimes, uh, you know, you'll say, Hey, you're in the woods. You can only see the tree that's blocking your path. But if you came back up and looked at the forest, you'd see it's fine. Once you get around that tree, everything's fine. And so, um, I think that that's one of the many, many great, assets and skills you bring but just that really helpful sage wisdom and um you're not always trying to necessarily give the solutions or the answer directly but giving us the the vehicle and tool to go find them and then um and then and then making sure that they stay there and i think that's been a huge part of our success is working in that tandem of like you know hey you just need to take the higher level view or no you need to get back in and get your hands dirty again and find that the answer in there it's fun doing it together and those answers change as we yeah. scale and as, as technologies change but the 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 most rewarding part of my career is that i think that we're doing good things and yeah. we're doing it i'm doing it with good people yes i love the people i work with and that's that you're right there on the top of the list well thank you i appreciate it yeah it's been awesome absolutely well, let's let's go make a summer of it then. awesome great thank you <laughs> thanks appreciate it